Hey guys, well, welcome back to the show. This week's episode of the American Landman Podcast. I am your host, Neil Hogger, land specialist for Whitetail Properties Real Estate in Northwest Wisconsin. And you're at the American Landman Podcast where we talk about buying, managing, and selling American land. And today I've got a American Landman named Brian Roish on the line and Brian's going to come in and we're going to talk about a couple uh, cool things. We get a little long, so just giving you a heads up, I think this is the longest podcast I ever did at about a hour and 10 minutes, but Brian really starts getting into some really cool stuff at the end. And I think we're probably going to have to have him come back. So we start off the conversation first talking about his family legacy. He is a landowner. His family has been owning a piece of property in Wood County, Wisconsin for over 140 years, one of the longest legacy landowners in the uh, in the whole county. And they do a little farming on that with some hay and they do some cranberries. So we talk about cranberries, which is something we've never ever talked about and I don't think I've ever heard it talked about anywhere. So it's just maybe a little boutique crop that if you're in that sand country, that might be something to uh, consider. And then we get a little bit into investing. Brian is buying land and subdividing it. And we touch on that a little bit. And that's, again, we were getting a little long. So I think we're going to have to have him come back and we'll dive into that. And then we end up talking about the uh, MFL program in Wisconsin, the Managed Forest Law Program. So we're going to bring him on. But before we do, I just want to take a moment or two to pay the bills and talk about a couple partners with this podcast. So let's do that and then we'll get right into the show. Hey guys, I just want to take a minute to talk about a great seed blend that I have been planting on my farm. I've got about three and a half, maybe four acres in this seed blend by Vitalize Seed Company. And um, so far I'm really impressed uh, with the system. It's a real simple one, two system in the fall, which is when I started, I used the carbon load and carbon load has about 16 seeds in this blend um, from uh, four types of clover. There's four types of brassica. Some are more leafy uh, and others are meant to grow bigger bulbs. There's uh, grasses in the form of wheat and triticale and oats. And it's just a very diverse blend. And it's just a great uh, blend that will attract from the moment it starts popping on the soil all the way to late season when they're digging up the bulbs and eating eating it. But the reason that I'm really interested in this is because of the soil benefits of this system. So the fall is the carbon load and it's meant to have a lot of volume. It's going to be a great fall attraction for the deer. But in the spring, I'm going to terminate this uh, this foliage. And that is gonna lay on top of my soil and it's gonna to start to feed my soil. And then I'll plant into this the second phase, which is Nitro Boost. And Nitro Boost is meant to sequester nitrogen that's right over the surface of my food plots in the atmosphere. So therefore decreasing the amount of chemical inputs that I'm gonna to have to put into my soil, which is something I'm trying to my best to get away from. I may not get away from it 100%, but I'm definitely gonna reduce my input costs due to this one, two system. So check them out, go to vitalizeseed.com um, and look at the seed blends. And if you're interested, I'm in Western Wisconsin, I can sell this product to you. I have uh, it in stock most likely. And if I can't, I could get it ordered and we'll ship it to you for free. Uh, Vitalize Seed Company, soil benefits with a one, two system, just the way nature intended. All right, well, let's uh, welcome to the show, Brian Roche. Brian, welcome. Hey, Neil. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, man, I've been uh, I've been wanting to do uh, 
central Wisconsin for some time. And you're the only guy that I could think of that I know that owns some land over there. And, um, and you got a couple of interesting topics we could talk about. And so, um, I do appreciate coming on and, and, uh, we're going to have a good talk here. So sit back and Great. grab a beer or Great. whatever you have. And, good. <laughs> All right. So, um, Brian, um, let's talk a little bit about your family. You've got, you've got a pretty deep family history, in central Wisconsin, you're, you're located in Wood County, right? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, our farm, uh, was purchased by my great grandfather in 1879. Um, it's 80 acres, Tom and since then it's, I'm fourth generation owner. And so I guess this year we're 143 years in our family name. So it's one of the older family, uh, you know, long time established farms here in Wood County. Wow. How did grandpa get that land? Oh, no. He, uh, they, they, um, uh, immigrated from Germany in, uh, the early forties. They lived in, uh, Milwaukee for quite a length of time, 25, 30 years or whatever, until they moved up here. Um, and so he was just in, I think, uh, actually the shoemaking trade down in Milwaukee. And they decided to apparently purchase uh, the property up here at the time. Um, so it's it been a long time ago. Obviously, I don't know the whole story behind it, but glad they did. It's it's a real pretty farm. Yeah, and uh, I know I know that it, when they bought it, it must have been pretty much um, maybe ten acres of farmland, or, or at the most at that point in time. There's another family that owned it prior to him. They had built an old stone um, smokehouse, which was obviously something that was needed back in those days. Um, you know, for preserving meat and that type of thing. So that still stands on the farm. It's, I don't know, probably, you know, five feet, six feet by four feet wide. And that's all they needed it just to cure meat. That's, that's still on the farm as a reminder of what it was like 150 years ago. Every time you look at that, you're, you're reminded at how hard these people must have been. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, back, so in about 18, 70 you said that it was purchased 1879 was that during the time when so the logging had started in that area probably by then or maybe around that time oh yeah right yeah so do you think this land was cut over land yeah yeah actually um i would say that the logging probably started 20 years before that and that a lot of this land was completely logged at the time and then uh, it was sold. I think the, actually the the, uh, the government had had sold the timber rights to one of the land you know barons back then, and uh, and then I believe after he got done cutting everything, the government must have still owned it, and then they were uh, they basically allowed people to homestead the land as long as they were going to clear it and then start farming on it. So my guess is that the family that owned it before ours. Um, was under that kind of a arrangement where they the government deeded the land to them and determined to farm it. So they they started clearing the stumps and all that. Uh, then eventually they moved on, and that's when my great grandfather bought it. So historically, the upper third to two thirds of Wisconsin was the heavy big woods, right? And I would say you're you're right at that line um, where the big woods end. Is that would that be right? 
Well, I know it's predominantly white pine when they bought it, which much of uh, the northern two thirds of Wisconsin, I believe, if I, I think you're right, my history right. Yeah, predominantly of white pine was the species, and um, I know that as you moved a little west of here, you get into Jackson County, that eastern part part of Jackson, that was one of the last areas logged in central Wisconsin because of the of the wetness, but northern Wisconsin was well underway as far as being logged in that era. Um, so yeah, nineteen or eighteen seventies. Can only imagine that. No chainsaws. They didn't, I don't even know if they had rails then at that point. My history serves me, I'm a little bit of a history buff on this. They would, a lot of these German and Norwegian, you know, upper um, Northern European types came over, immigrated over, and then they would get these small plots of land, 40 acres and a mule type thing. And in the summer they would farm and in the winter they, these guys would go north and they'd live in these massive deer camps, or excuse me, logging camps in northern Wisconsin. And uh, they would do yeah. that through the winter and that would they'd, they'd save their money. And in the summer they would, they would farm, but man, they denuded those places. I can only imagine the wasteland that they experienced back then. But within the next 20, 30 years, of course, a lot of that grew back. And then the deer hunting came on strong and there was a whole lifestyle that you know we both of us know the traditions of wisconsin for whitetail hunting and that started up a whole new opportunity so nature has a way it's funny, of healing uh, yeah funny you mentioned the, the the logging camps because my grandmother's uh brother grew up close to our farm here um was in a logging camp up and he was actually on a floating uh floating camp on the river, way up in northern Wisconsin, I forget which river. Amacogan? Anyway, he was not sure which one it was, but he was a, uh, a, a camp assistant chef. And and when we were kids, we always kind of looked at his hand. He had a finger missing, you know. And uh, so one time we got, we got enough nerve to ask him, what happened to your finger there, uh, Uncle George? And he and he told us that when he was in, you know, in in, in this camp, he was a chef, you know, an assistant, whatever, you know, helped out in that. And he was cutting kindling, and he missed. He chopped his index finger off. Oh no! <laughs> took him took him like two days to finally get to a, a doctor or whatever that they could, um, you know, at least sew it up and bandage it and you know take care of it that way. I mean, it was just remote, just remote, you know, places. That finger might have ended up in somebody's stew, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, the yeah, cook was always fun. the uh, really important guy in camp. Yes. And right. the guys would get up in the morning and they would come into these massive chow halls made out of logs and they would they gorge themselves with high calorie foods. And then I think they would bring hot meals out to the guys in the woods so they could take a break and eat. And, uh, and then they'd come in at night, obviously, and do their eating and maintaining of their equipment, whatever, go to bed and get up and do the next thing. But man, if you didn't cook well for these guys, (laughs) they weren't happy, but if you did, they worked a lot harder. So he was probably a pretty popular guy. Yeah. Right. Well, that's awesome. So then 
your so that was a great grandfather is that or or that would that would have been a great uncle great uncle uh, okay would have been a, yeah, yep no i mean i mean the owner who originally owned it that'd be a oh that was my great grandfather great grandfather and then that got passed to your grandfather and then how many acres did he grow it to uh, it was, it's always been 88 it's always been 80 uh, okay yeah, uh, my father bought 40 acres next to us back in the 70s, and that's still under my brother's ownership. But the, the, the original 80 is, is in my name now, but that's that's what they originally bought. And what were they farming on the land there? Because my impression is that's not the best soil there. Heavier, uh, heavier wetter soil. Um, we, although we'd live, the, the farm kind of sits on top of a hill, but, you know, as uh as people know, when you're on a hill, that, a lot of that good topsoil kind of washes down over generations, you know, down to the lower land. Um, but it was dairy, pretty much just dairy. You know, they raised it up for the family to eat and probably sold a little bit. Um, there was a small cheese factory right down the road from our farm that no doubt some of the milk would go to. So at the time, uh, for many years, it was just used as a dairy operation. Sometime back in the 40s, it uh, started changing a little bit. They, My dad bought the farm in 45, I'm going to say, and uh, he, was in, he got into the insurance business. So we always had cows around. We always had to milk cows by hand, but there was only like four or five at the time. So uh, it, it gradually kind of changed. Now, about 1990, my father uh, put in a very small cranberry bed, and uh in 2007, I expanded it after I bought the farm to uh, another four acres. So we have about five acres of certified organic cranberries. And other than that, the hay is made on the farm, you know, organic hay and, and sometimes buckwheat, that type of thing. But it's, there's no more animals on it. It's uh, just either the cranberries or, or uh, hay. So starting in the 90s, you, you owned it. And it sounds like it's kind of an operational farm. I mean, is this is this like a a hobby that's kind of on steroids here, or is it? Are you actually running it as a business, so to say? Well, it's run as a business, but it's um, you know the, with the cranberries, it's more of a fall type. You know, you're busy in the fall for two, three weeks, and just a little bit of maintenance in the summertime, uh, just making sure that the, the water is adequately uh, irrigated and. You know, fertilized timely and that type of thing. But yeah, the, the big emphasis would be the fall, yeah. about a three-week harvest. And you know, beyond that, um, just hay, other farmers make the hay on it and stuff. So it, it really doesn't require me to be here during the most of the year except for harvest. Yeah. Well, you know, most people when think of cranberries, they, they, I know me, uh, I'm thinking, I only think of cranberries about once a year and that's Thanksgiving and it comes out of a can. But, uh, so for the people that are listening that really don't know much about cranberries, tell us about it. Tell us about the bogs and the planting and the operation and the growing and everything around cranberries. All right. Well, our, our farm is considered an upland marsh. Now, Many years ago, uh, well, I should, well, 150 years ago, when cranberries were kind of discovered, uh, they, a lot of central Wisconsin, the, the bog land, was, was covered in these wild cranberry vines. And, and way back in that day, they handpicked these things. 
and uh, it would take them to market via train that would go out of Wisconsin Rapids. And you know, we're talking there in the 1860s, 70s, 80s. And um, on our on our farm, uh, of course, we weren't growing cranberries, but uh, the, the the thought process back then is they didn't have pumps, so everything was done by gravity. Fed as far as water goes. So if you had a reservoir in the bogs, uh, you could dam it up a little bit and then drop that water down into the beds if you needed it for harvest or for frost watch and stuff like that. Well, back in the nineties, um, actually our my dad started the first what we call upland bog, where we just had a pond and we just pumped water out of the pond for irrigation or for flooding and stuff like that. And uh, it was really kind of a first because nobody had ever thought of the idea of having a cranberry bog on an upland. But it's now that's the only place you literally can put a new cranberry marsh because of the wetland laws. Right, they so won't let you destroy them. Right. So now there's a very, most of the cranberry marshes you see, any new ones are all in the uplands, uh, where they're not disturbing any wetlands uh, because of the laws. And so I guess we can probably say with our farm, it was kind of an innovative uh, farm in that sense that we were kind of the first cranberry operation that wasn't down in the bog. It was almost by accident, but uh, my dad had worked on as a young man down in the cranberry marshes in the 30s and 40s, uh, raking cranberries. In fact, he bought this farm uh, on a loan from one of my distant uncles, and he, my dad paid it back over a period of like 15 years at $200 a year, and he got that $200 from raking cranberries. Wow. Annual payment yeah. of so, big time, 200 bucks. That was that was that was something else. Yep. Right. I bet he was pretty concerned that he could meet that every year. Well, you know, it it probably was a little bit. Um they had to work hard on that cranberry marsh to make two hundred dollars, I can tell you that. I can only imagine. Well, I want to introduce a new sponsor of the American Landman podcast, and that is Swamp Buck Camo. Swamp Buck Camo got its start in northern Wisconsin, so you know that they know cold weather and deer hunting. And they've come out with a proprietary uh, camo that I'm looking at in a really good-looking cold weather jacket in the gray Swamp Buck pattern. It's listed for sale at $119, so it's definitely a great price. And I think they actually started selling their product out of Shields. So you might find them at a retail store if you have a Shields sporting goods nearby. Um, but one thing that intrigues me about this is the price. It seems to be very affordable. Um, definitely, if they're hunting in northern Wisconsin, they know cold weather, so they probably have developed a great line of clothing. And uh, you may be seeing this showing up in my videos at the American Landman vlog very soon because I'll be uh, trying this product out for myself wearing it on my daily activities and I'm definitely going to put it to use. And if you're interested in trying some Swamp Buck Camo, give them a call, order from their website, swampbuck.com, however you get a hold of them, but give them the code ALM25, American Landman 25, ALM25, and you'll get $25 off your first order. Give them a try. Let me know how it's working for you. Swampbuckcamo.com. Get that buck. So these cranberries, I did a little bit of research on this because as I called you last week, one of my listeners, hopefully he's listening to this, gave me a, basically a bushel of cranberry seed. And 
I've got a small little bog on my property. That's kind of a marshy wetland. And I, he's like, I don't know if it'll grow. Just go toss a seed out there and see what happens. It doesn't really, it's not really standing water. It's just wet land. But as I was looking in the videos on YouTube about oh, cranberry businesses, they, if I'm, if I'm right, they took pieces of like vines and they basically like spread it how you'd put like straw mulch down if you planted grass seed they just spread this stuff all over is that how you start a bog how is that what it takes well yes that's how they're done today um and but you know obviously a cranberry vine had to start from a seed at some point in time yeah and so i i would i would guess that if you took that seed and you put it under the you know buried it under the surface a little bit um, it may well come up, but if there's a lot of weeds and grasses that also come up, then it probably won't survive. Mm. But what they do in these beds now is, is they, is they, um, bulldoze out a level area, add about a foot and a half of sand on top of that area, level it all out, and then they, they buy vines from another marsh or use vines from their own marsh on a different bed, and they're cut up to maybe six inch length. And then you can either hand spread these things out or have a, have a machine that distributes them almost like a manure spreader. And then, uh, they'll come behind that with a tractor with a, almost a disc on it, except the blades are straight. They aren't, they aren't canted in any way. They're straight. And that pushes the vine down into the sand. Kind of like a cultipacker, huh? You, yep. And then if you keep that vine damp or wet, It'll start growing roots, and there's there's the start of your vine. These vines will can last a hundred years, so you don't replant them every year. You you just you can you can harvest cranberries for fifty to a hundred years on these vines. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell how the the planting thing starts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are and, the are the are the cranberries like grapes? How you know a, a seasoned grapevine can be very old. And they seem to get better and better as they get older. Is that is it the same for, true for cranberries? Uh, no, actually, they and cranberries they'll get they'll they'll be probably the most productive within ten years after they're first planted, and then uh, they'll slowly decline in in uh, their fertility, if you want to call it that, over over many decades. But there's things you can do. Uh, they 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 uh, to maintain these vines to their highest potential. They sand. They put about a half an inch of sand over the uh, over over them each, maybe every three four years. And that's it's almost like putting nitrogen on them. It stimulates the plant to produce more what they call uprights. The uprights are the, the that's what the actual cranberries grow on. You have uprights. So the more uprights, the more chances you have of having a bigger crop. Uh, and so every three, four years, they'll sand them uh, with about a half an inch. The other thing that sanding does is it kind of uh, covers any organic matter and possibly bugs and stuff like that, insects, covers it all up. And so you're kind of starting new again because cranberries, you know, they're like any other crop. If you get, uh, get too many bugs and insects and stuff like that, uh, going uh, that creates issues, but I think mo the most part is that that sand covering the, the new sand covering the uh, the vines 
creates more uprights, which ultimately creates a better yield. So in the video that I saw, then they free, they, when you harvest, right, you flood it. Mm-hmm. And then the berries have air pockets and then they rise to the top, right? Yeah. Do you have to like yeah, thrash them? How do you get them loose or get them floating? Well, they've got special, um, special machines that'll knock that berry off the vine. And then they, like you said, they float to the top. They take uh, what they call a boom, uh, which is a uh, material that surrounds the berries. And then they can keep on tightening it up as they're as the berries are coming off. Um, it just aids in the harvest of them. Um, but there's a couple of ways to harvest cranberries. One is through the wet method, is you knock them off that way. Uh, we have because we're smaller, we dry harvest. We have dry harvest pickers, and, um, and so we don't use any water in the in the harvest process it, until after everything is harvested. Then we'll flood the bed up in any berries that happen to not get picked up by the dry rake machine float up to the top. We can take those off and sell them as a juice berry. Okay. So it's uh, we're different than a lot of the marshes in that we dry harvest. So the dry harvest picker, is that Mrs. Brian? Is that what? Is that your wife that does that? I was making a joke, the dry harvest <laughs> picker. Uh, no, no. This is, uh, this is uh, I hate to say it, but this is kind of a um, manly job. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty intensive work. But you actually have a machine that's doing this, right? Yeah, yeah. But then when that forty pound bag of cranberries fills up, you move it to the edge of the move it to the you know the edge of the beds, and then you go and you pick up another bag, put it on, and keep on going. It's a pretty strenuous process, actually. I always, you know, I guess I always equate like cranberries with water and the and bogs is really mushy wet it, are, is that how this is is it like really really no. damp no it's dry no no they say the, they say the uh the optimal um moisture in a cranberry bed should be around 15 percent. okay which isn't a lot so they you know they're like a lot of plants corn and all them they, they don't like they don't like you know what what roots so um, a lot of the growers today, including in our marsh, now we have drain tile on them, believe it or not. So to keep to keep the water off the roots and to try to maintain that that percentage of moisture, okay. Um, and so if you can, the closer to that percentage you can keep it, probably the healthier cranberry bed you're going to have and the most productive. So yeah, this is a myth. It's, it's a myth that cranberries grow in water or they like, um, even in, even if you find cranberries growing in a bog, you know, a regular mossy bog, uh, that, that cranberry vine can't withstand, um, constant water on it. I mean, if it's standing in standing water, that vine will ultimately die. So there's got this, there's got to be uh, some aeration in that soil that they're growing in, at least for a, a certain time while it's growing in the summer. Otherwise, uh, it, it won't survive. If there's a guy out there that's got farmland, a farm in central Wisconsin or anywhere that's similar to Wood County, describe what the land looks like. Help us understand what it would take to set up uh, an operation. Wood County, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wood County is a, really a flat county for the most part. And, and so you get into the more the northern part of the county is a little more rolling. Uh, get some more land relief and and uh, more uh, 
just kind of a um, sloping terrain. Southern Wood County, the southern half is a lot of very flat land. In fact, the reason it's flat is because of, you know, when the great uh, glacier came through, uh, it deposited from Canada most of the sand down in central Wisconsin. That's where the sand came from. So this was most of the southern part of Wood County was in considered uh, part of the Great Lake Wisconsin, right? Went all the way down to Wisconsin Dells. And so uh, it's very flat in the southern half of uh, Wood County and a little more rolling as you get toward the northern part. Uh, southern part is has more of the forested areas. Northern half is more of the farmland areas. Um, so that's the Highway 73 kind of separates the farmland to the north from the more of the central forest region south of Highway 73. So you be- and, and the funny part the funny part about Wood County is about from Highway 73 south a lot of uh, a lot of it is the lower country the sand a lot of sand that's where the cranberry marshes thrive whereas north of 73 is more of the clay the heavy soil type uh, better farming areas. So it, 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 it distinguishes itself that way too, just by soil types. Yeah. Sounds like it's really diverse. So on your, yeah. you, you said you have four acres of organic beds, right? Is that what yeah. you said? Yeah. How many, yeah. what's the like tonnage? Like how do you measure your production and corn is bushels? How do you measure that? Yeah. Uh, it, basically it's um, uh, the barrels is what they call it. Instead of a bushel, it's a barrel, and a barrel is roughly 100 pounds. So the production is generally, if, if you say barrels per acre, you're talking generally cranberries. Uh, I've never heard of it measured in any other way than that. So, um, you know, depending upon the hybrid that you are growing, I have I have a Stevens hybrid, but, uh, you know, the, the yields organically could be 50 to 100, 150 if you have a really good year, barrels per acre. Uh, the conventional growers are, you know, that same variety will grow you 250 to maybe even 350 in a really good year. But uh, what, what we're seeing is that the whole industry is starting to replant old vines, old hybrids with these new hybrids that are growing anywhere from 400 to 800 barrels per acre. Wow. Uh, huge, huge numbers compared to uh, you know, years past. So, uh, you know, on that same acre of cranberries, I could only pro- produce maybe 10 to 20,000 pounds 30 years ago. And now I might be producing 100 to 200,000 pounds. It's, it's crazy uh, how these hybrids have um, really changed the landscape as far as cranberry production. How many acres does a guy have to have to make it profitable to maybe want to do this? Because I'm sure there's a guy out there that's, got a farm like you and says, huh, I mean, I'm going to plant some cranberry yeah. bogs. Well, my philosophy is, first, since I sell real estate, yeah. my philosophy is, is the smaller the better so I can concentrate on selling property versus, versus uh, uh, you know, busting my tail raising cranberries. But sure. I would say probably if you're a one, one-man show, uh, probably 40 acres is going to be a give you all you ever want all you can handle huh? workload yeah yeah do you can you rent out the work i mean the guys come and harvest them for you 
You can, yeah, you can. Well, yeah, I, I'm expecting that you'd probably hire some people in the harvest time, right? Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, unless you get really big, you can't afford to hire people. So my philosophy is stay a little bit small and where you can do most of the work on your own and then just at special times of the year hire, you know, part-time workers. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, and it's like anything else, you know, you're growing food, good chance you're not getting rich. I suppose, yeah, well, till it comes you know, to... The, the, the growers typically aren't the ones that are getting rich. Yeah. Typically. Yeah, because I suppose yeah. the markup, the, they're the wholesalers or yeah. the lowest level of yeah. the rung, and yeah. every time yeah. those berries yeah. change hands, it goes up in price until you get it into right. a right. you know quart-sized yeah. bag and you pay 15 bucks for it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but I mean... I mean not, not, to, not to say that you can't make money at it, but, you know, there's, there's, this, there's a lot of levels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, until you get down to the farmer, farmer, the actual grower, uh, and how they get paid. So, well, it, maybe it's paying for your hobbies because I'm, I'm I'm looking at your um, profile here on on the internet, and I'm seeing some pretty big bucks coming off your farm or nearby. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 been it's been a, a fun it's been fun, and I look forward to. I'm, Seven, and I look forward to you know raising cranberries a long time. But it does uh, it does allow me to uh, do some hunting too, and, uh, and I'd love to do that ever since I was about twelve years old. Oh yeah, that's the whole dream of guys. I think that yep. want to be an American landman, and you because you're it, yeah. and you're, you're kind of living off your land a little bit, and you get into hunting. So. Yeah. You got to, you got to, you're standing with your arm on a really super buck that, that I think you told me goes 160 oh, inches. Oh, oh. That, now that particular one now uh, on the internet, I've got, there's a couple of them. That one, I was actually a, a taxidermist for a number of years. That's actually a client of mine. Oh, a buck that was shot here in Wood County. That one, that one is a 170 plus. That's a beauty. The other one that I'm that I'm that's it's in front of me. I've got my orange coat on. Yeah, coat. That that's a one sixty class. That I shot on my my uh, eighty that I bought in nineteen ninety seven. History behind that eighty is that when I was about twelve or thirteen years old, my dad took us, my brothers and I, down to that piece of property, and and we actually blocked it. And I was so impressed by that piece of property, and I I said to myself, I want to own this someday. But I had to wait till I was 42. At 12 year old, you had the change. foresight to say, "I'm going to own this land." Yes, I, I honestly, God, I, I would, I want to own this piece of property. Well, I didn't even know what I was talking about, but impressive. I, I wanted to buy something. It took me till I was 42 before I finally had the opportunity. Yeah, and I bought it, and I've had it ever since. Uh, one of the great things I've ever purchased. You know, uh, but anyway, that. That buck was it was it's the biggest I've shot on it. Um, back in '93, uh, prior just a few years prior to buying that, we started a quality deer, deer management cooperative in our area, and uh, and back then, I mean, if spikes and forks were about all we would shoot. Uh, then when we started that, a lot of the landowners got involved in that. It is progressively got just better over the years, but that's that's one of the best. I, not the best that's been shot down there, but certainly my best. Yeah. I, well, I was going to ask, is, are those bucks typical for Wood County? 
you know, Wood County is, um, um, I would say those are probably a little bit bigger. I mean, that's on the bigger end. But uh, I think Wood County actually has one of the largest bucks ever shot in the state. The typical 197 uh, taken back in the 50s. Um, and, and those genetics are still out there, obviously. Uh, but I, I would say, if, I would say if you shoot, you shoot a 160 inch buck in, in Wood County, you got definitely one of the higher end bucks, more than likely that'll be shot in that county in a given year, depending upon the year, of course. But, so, uh, I would say, I, I'd say if I, sh- if I see a 140 inch buck down here, I'm shooting it. Yeah. Well, most guys Look would. Out. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really nice deer. And I, I would say every year we probably have one like that running around uh, on our 80 and, you know, surrounding areas. And sometimes bigger, sometimes you might not have that. But uh, for the most part, I'd say that 120 to 140 inch, I'd say, is, uh, is a uh, typical range of a, a two to four-year-old buck down here. Which is respectable. But when, yeah. so when you guys started the QDMA, um, cooperative now NDA, right. Was that yeah. difficult to get the guys on board to do that? Yeah. It, yes and no. I mean, I was really surprised when I took a video around to the local landowners and said, Hey, what do you think of this? It was kind of a video about how you let bucks walk, you know? Um, I was kind of surprised by the answer that I was given back dude most of them said you know if i can get the neighbor to do it i'd do it mm-hmm. and and that's very typical of what you'd still hear today it's like well i'd do it but the neighbor won't do it well we went around and we asked all the neighbors and they all agreed to do it if the neighbor would do it well most of them agreed to do it and that's kind of how it all got started and and honestly from there um i used to do presentations probably one a week for a couple of years and all around the center part of the state uh, at, you know, bars and restaurants, stuff like that. People would ask me, would you come in? And, and so I did a lot of that promoting QDMA. And honestly, uh, my belief is that the reason you saw prices of real estate, hunting land go from two to $300 an acre back in the, even the late eighties, even in the late eighties, early nineties, you could buy a lot of, hunting land for two, three hundred bucks an acre. But once QDMA took hold, the fever of that movement started the impact on prices of hunting land, private land. And uh, within 10 years, uh, land all of a sudden that was selling for 300 an acre was selling for 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 an acre. And, you know, then we got into the 2000s and it just kept going up from there. So I, I strongly believe that the QDMA movement whether you like it or not, uh, created um, a big impact, had a big impact on the pricing of hunting land. I think you loved it if if you're a landowner, if you bought it back then and you own it now, you love it because you did and you're reaping the benefits. Yep. But there's a lot of guys now, because I hear it all the time, you guys like you drive the price of the, you're driving it up. And I'm saying, I, I'm not driving it up. I'm not buying it. The people are buying it. Right. But in a sense, you know, maybe there's some truth to that because, we raised the awareness of these deer and they got bigger and we could prove it and that moved the needle. And now, gosh, I mean, there's a, there's either the haves or the have nots in a lot of area because the guys that want to get in can't get in anymore. Well, it is, it, you know, who would ever thought I would never have even thought in 93 when we started 
TDMA down here that that it would have any impact whatever on prices. I never even never yeah. even crossed my mind. It's not like you said, I'll yeah. go and we're gonna drive the price of the of the real estate up. Yeah. Right. Let's do this QDMA right. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had no idea that ever would even never entered my mind that it would actually impact something like that. But you think about it, if you think about western Wisconsin, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Think about Buffalo County and the reputation it's had for the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no reason, there, there, are, there are some reasons somebody would want to go over there and buy a piece of property just random. Oh, I think I'd like to buy a piece of property over here. But we all know the reason that hunters are buying there is because of the potential of the of the large antlers that they typically have, okay? So uh, outside of that, I mean, there's no big industry or things like that that would drive people to buy property there versus like in central Wisconsin, you know, our bucks aren't quite that size and we haven't been known over the years for to be a big buck factory. Therefore, the same hunting land that you could buy over there, which now is selling for what, seven, eight, nine thousand bucks an acre for 40? Yes. You know, we, you can get over here in Wood County and central Wisconsin for maybe, you know, on the lower end, 3,000 on a, you know, on a, on a piece to maybe 5,000 an acre. So it's, it's the big antlers that are driving prices. No doubt in my mind. You're going to pull some of my buyers over there. Although, okay, since you just plugged uh, Wood County, you know, no, I think, I uh, think. Yeah, but if you, Go ahead. Uh, it, well, what I was going to say is you can still shoot some really nice bucks over here in the Wood County area. I'd agree. In central Wisconsin, you know, uh, but you might not have a 200 inch running around, but, I, you know, but hey. <laughs> How many how many people actually shoot a two hundred inch right. even if it's running around? Well, you yeah. see that all the time on the well, magazines and the TV shows, yeah. but the reality yeah. is those are right. the top, you know, yeah. what two percenters and most right. people yeah. most people probably, honestly, Brian, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I think most guys that just go out and hunt a little bit or maybe are the annual deer season for a couple of days. If they saw a hundred and forty inch buck, hundred and fifty inch buck in the woods in a with a fleeting glimpse, that thing might as well be 200 because they wouldn't know the difference. It's the biggest buck that they've sure. ever seen. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, they'd be, they'd think about that all their life. Yeah. Uh, what a great buck he had seen and or she, and uh, that's the whole hunting experience. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to shoot a hundred and you know, it, the, the size doesn't matter. It's what the hunter's mind, you know, what they're thinking and how exciting that was. And, and the memories it creates, that's really what it's all about. And, uh, you know, if you're lucky enough in your life to ever shoot a really big buck, you know, good for you. Yeah. If you're not, but you saw one and you're happy about it and you, it was very exciting, well, good for you too. I mean, just being out in the woods and with social things with friends and family, you know, that's really what makes the hunt the hunt. Uh, I bought a, I put a hunting cabin on a piece of ground I bought when I was 20 years old put a hunting cabin on it. We had our, like, 10 guys staying at it. And that was back in the traditional hunting days where you shot a buck if it had horns, right? Right. We had more fun for those 25 years that I owned that. It was just a wonderful experience. I totally agree. So I'd encourage, yeah, I'd encourage people, hey, you know, take what you want, uh, whatever makes your hunting experience great. And I, I still believe that it's the hunting cabin, the social part of that, bringing family and friends together that 
it outshines even shooting a buck. <laughs> I mean, really, that's the hunting experience that I think is uh, what makes owning a piece of ground, having your own cabin on it. It just makes it really Yeah. Simple. You guys, I just want to take a minute to talk about one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Packer Max uh, HD, the cult of packer that has hit the market by storm and i picked up one of these units this fall and i've been using it now to help plant my fall food plots and i gotta tell you i am super impressed with uh the results of this uh packer cult of packer um I definitely have gotten germination, probably twice the germination that I would have gotten or have gotten on other fields. I was so amazed by the difference. And I called Lincoln, the owner, and he kind of chuckled because he's obviously seen this before. He says, yeah, 100% of your seed went down and 100% of your seed went came up. And I would tell you that is 100% true because I planted probably about 14 days ago from when I recorded this uh, promo here. And the amount of germination that I got on this plot versus others where i did not use the packer max uh is notably different so guys if you haven't tried uh the packer max then you need to give it a shot and you can use a promo code alm25 and get 25 dollars off a unit and it comes in two different sizes so there's a four foot uh size which is what i've got and there's also an eight foot size and there's even a three point hitch model so if you have a tractor that you want to use it on uh you can Put it to uh, hook it to your back of your John Deere or whatever, but it's a very thick, about a quarter inch rotomolded polyethylene drum, and it's really durable. I mean, my soil is pretty rock free, but I definitely rolled this to some food plots and rolled over the top of uh, some rocks that were in the trails without damaging this unit. So I do, I wouldn't say I abuse it by any means. I, I slow down, but that was one of my worries: is how is this? polyethylene drum going to work but i'm going to tell you it's fine it does excellent just kind of take your time get easy rolling over the top of any rocks and you're going to be fine so uh check them out um the whole packer max lineup and if you decide to purchase one use the promo code alm25 and lincoln will give you 25 bucks off your own packer max hd system you know, I grew up that way too. Um, I started off squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting. And then when I got to be 12, I got to go to deer camp for with the guys and they would go up on Thursday, maybe Friday morning. And then we'd hunt Saturday and Sunday. And we, a lot of times we'd come home on Monday and that would be it. And, you know, we shot a lot of deer. I look back to the old, you know, snapshots that we have and big trucker ball hat caps and the, you know, 1980s, big glasses and whatnot. And, it wasn't about the size of horns. Um, we shot a lot of deer and we had a great time doing it. And it was all the things that went with the early mornings camping out and trying to get, get warm and cooking over a fire or for us going into Maryland, Wisconsin, if anybody knows where that, to a little cafe and we'd eat breakfast at four o'clock in the morning. And then there'd literally be an army of lights going out into the state forest. And, yeah. you know, we just yeah. walk out in the woods, sit down. So hopefully we see something and yeah, I would, I'd agree, but you know, times have changed oh, yeah. and, and guys are yeah. investing in land and they, they, they want more out of it. And it's just, it is yeah. what it is, but so let's move on to that. Well, let, let's talk about that in the investing. So you're, you're an agent. So just for people to know, he's Brian sells property as a real estate agent, but more and more interesting to me is you're buying property too, and you're improving right. it and you're selling it. So let's, let's talk about that. So I heard from a guy the other day, you can't buy any piece of land. You can't buy it nowadays. It's just too expensive. And there's just no deals out there. But that's not true because 
today you're writing an offer on a piece of land and three or four months back or so you sold a big piece of land that you bought. So tell us what's going on in, in, with your investing. Um, well, what, what typically I look for is a bigger piece that, um, um, that it, with, with good access, good road frontage is really, really important. That's for what I'm looking for if I want to invest in it for something outside of deer hunting, right? So um, if it's got good access and uh, then you can afford to buy it at a little less money per acre on a bigger chunk and then uh, divide it up into smaller pieces that more people can afford. Um, obviously, more people can afford a 20 than a 200. So if you buy that 160 or 200, you can um, you can split it up into maybe 20 acre pieces or 40 acre pieces, whatever. You know, sometimes the land kind of dictates what you're going to do with it in terms of, you know, if there's lowlands and if there's a building spot, and, you know, things like that on it. But I have uh, I've, I've had pretty darn good success here in the last few years uh, with purchasing property and then selling them to smaller parcels. How small do you like to go, Brian? Personally, I don't like going real small. I'd, I'd rather stay in that 20-acre uh, area. But I know there's other companies that, you know, they'll do the five-acre stuff, three to five acres. They'll split it up into really small parcels. Um, personally, I just personally, I just would rather deal with larger parcels, fewer, fewer transactions. So when you're buying this land, if you're buying a 200, you're getting about three that three thousand an acre. That um, yeah, you can you know I, I can find them for that. Yeah, uh, they're they're far and few between. But if you buy the bigger pieces, you usually can get them less per acre. Yeah, so that's the key. So you you do that's subscribe to that. A, a, a large piece of yeah. property is going to be you're going to get a discount for a large piece. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Normally, normally speaking, you will. Yeah. In this market, I don't know people th- because there's yeah yeah right. There's the, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, um, and, and sometimes there's issues with the property. For example, uh, the one I I bought a big 160 year a year or two ago uh, down in Adams County, and and the uh, FEMA uh, had designated that whole area as a flood zone. Well, just just my experience told me oh, this this is not a flood zone. FEMA expanded their floodplain zoning significantly in 2010 after all these big floods were happening and they're losing their tails so they just did the the flood zone and across the country so this this property i was looking at i knew it wasn't flooded ever so i had a i had a surveyor go down and he did some elevation studies and he says yeah he says this i can get this taken out of the floodplain easy enough so if, if you are if you determine to buy a piece of property and it's in the floodplain, and if you if you think that you know what I don't really think this is, pick a high spot on that property and have a surveyor come down and and uh, give you an idea if they agree that it's, the elevation is high enough that you could take it out of. Of uh, now, in a case like that, I bought the property very inexpensively because it was all zoned flood. Yeah, but. Because I took the time and the expense to have a surveyor come down and do a bunch of elevation studies, we found that we could take 90% of that property out of the floodplain. I imagine that. How did you notice that early on? Because, I mean, it's easy. You use, we have a couple of mapping tools like MapRite, and we could 
overlay yeah. floodplain. Well, how did you notice that? Just by walking it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, just by driving down the road and you look around and you say, well, this thing, this thing doesn't look like it would flood. Okay. Uh, some of it's just experience, you know, uh, but to me, it just looked like an obvious, well, there's houses here. They don't, you know, and I actually stopped in on one and I said, Hey, what's the story on this floodplain area? And their comment was, you know, it's, it's complete silliness. Uh, we don't know. We, we, we are paying flood insurance now. Uh, on our house that we didn't have to before, and they weren't even aware of of this rule that you can challenge it. And I, and as a matter of fact, I told a couple of them. I said, you know, we just pulled almost ninety percent of that one sixty out of floodplain. I said, you can do the same thing. It costs you about a grand. Have a the surveyor come down and do these these tests. And uh, more than likely, you're going to be able to take your property out. I was quoted, Neil. Uh, on this old farmhouse, when I bought it for flood insurance, this is prior to us actually getting the certificate from uh, from FEMA in floodplain. But I was quoted forty five hundred dollars flood insurance on this old farmhouse, and it wasn't in a floodplain. It wasn't in the floodplain, right? And and these and all these these people in the neighborhood that never took the time to. Uh, have this done are paying they were all paying it exorbitant prices for for your flood insurance so i i would just uh, recommend to people you know you see something in the floodplain it it very well may be but there might be parts of that property that aren't and that's you can target those higher areas if you got a good surveyor that is is um uh, familiar with this process. Some some of them are really good. The one I use here, Auto Wisconsin Rapids, is really good. Uh, he claims he's never had one turned down by FEMA once he sends it in, and I, I actually believe him. Uh, I've never had him do any work for any of my clients where it's come back differently. So uh, that's just an example of being able to buy property for less, ex- you know, less expensively because. There happened to be kind of a hiccup on the property, and everyone wanted to avoid it because of that. Well, as it turns out, it it, it wasn't the case. So had but this property money, had this property just been sitting there for a while, and that's kind of why it caught your attention. No, I actually, actually I had it listed for a year. Okay, and and I and I kept trying to combat this issue with these buyers, and uh, finally the listing was coming up for renewal, and I I just told the owner, I said, look. I says, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit embarrassed. We had a few offers on it. They just didn't, for whatever reason, need to go through. I says, I'll buy it. And he says, fine. And so I wound up, I bought it. And then, you know, again, went through the, again, the process of getting it all taken out of. And and the the owner that had it, I had suggested, let's, let's put it up. Let's, let's get uh, this thing taken out of, but he didn't want to spend the money to do it. He just said, no, I just want to sell this one piece. That's it. And so, you know, uh, I, I respect that decision, but um, when people buy a bigger piece of ground, you have some good opportunities to split off smaller parts or pieces maybe that you can live without and and make more money. And, you know, you can, in some cases, depending upon how big a piece you want to split it off, and you might double your money in a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me address that because I get this a lot. So people that are listening to this, so when like if you come to me and I'm in Western Wisconsin, 
And you ask me, you know, what's land like, you know, what's the land price in that area you go for? And I, I'll throw out a number. I'm like, well, what county are you looking at? And they'll say, oh, Dunn County. I'm like, all right, well, Dunn County, you know, on average is probably somewhere, I don't know, three grand to 3,500. It could be higher than that um, a little bit. But I, I would say the majority of land is probably at three to $3,500 an acre. But when I say that, I'm think I'm talking in terms of 40s, and I'm talking about the average 40. What Brian's doing here is he's roughly doing the same thing. Only he found an anomaly, maybe um, by looking at maps and just putting his boots on the ground that this just doesn't make sense. And you're buying that 160 based on a cost per acre of whatever the averages are in that area. Am, am I right so far? Mm-hmm. So, all right. So let's just doing the math here, you get 160 and, and you bought it for three grand an acre, you're at 480,000 bucks. And so then you start to subdivide it, right? So a 20 acre parcel, and this is where I'm making my point, a 20 acre parcel isn't going to be sold at $3,000 an acre, 60,000, because it's a 20 acre parcel, a 20 acre and somewhere around 20, it starts to become maybe like a, like a building lot type thing. And then in my area, I'm sure it sounds like it is your, you know, building lots going to be different. It might a building lot, 20 acres to build a little cabin on might be 80 grand. So, Mm -hmm. right. So the the cost per acre for 20 acres at 80,000, just, you just gained a thousand bucks an acre, $4,000 an acre for that. And I I would, yeah. And I would say I'd be conservative. Okay. A a 20 acre, 20 acre piece. If you buy land for three grand an acre, uh, 160, you can sell that 20 acre piece for a minimum. I would say of uh, a five grand an acre in today's day and age. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and that's just all relative to the to the location, right? I mean, you you just have to do the work and the, a little research. You go, what's a twenty, what's a twenty going for around here? Because in my area, yeah. I just sold a thirteen acre and I got two hundred and twenty thousand bucks for it. So if I do my math on that, I think mm-hmm. that comes out to be about sixteen thousand bucks an acre, yeah. roughly. So right, yeah, all right, yeah. So yeah. that's so the, the opportunity. The, the, the smaller the piece, right? The smaller the piece. You're going to re, you get rewarded, but generally speaking, that means generally more surveying, things like that, right? Right. Uh, so th- th- it costs a little bit more money. You're, you're splitting up the smaller pieces, et cetera, et cetera. And in some cases, you get small enough where you're going to have to go in front of the county and, and uh, get zoning changes to subdivision, residential, stuff like that. Um, that's where it gets a little bit hairy. Um, you probably want to know the township and the county ordinances, you know, as you're looking at property, just to have an idea that is this going to, you know, work out in terms of, um, you know, being able to subdivide, subdivide into smaller pieces. What you should know, I think, is what the minimum size requirement without surveying would be. Like, like for example, in Adams County, I think it's, um, I believe it's 15 acres. got to be above 15 or more acres, uh, if it's smaller than that, then it has to be a certified survey map requiring, you know, approval, first of all, and then, you know, having it surveyed. Yeah. So you probably want to know the minimum size that you can buy and, and, and sell it off. So in other words, if a 20 acres is the, is the minimum and you buy a 40, well, you can get two 20 acre pieces without doing anything. Right. Okay. Yeah. I just but did this with, uh, four pieces. I just did this 
And you're right. In one township where I live, it's a minimum three and it's, there's a really tough board to go through and to subdivide up. It's difficult. But then I just bought a 30 and it was a simple matter of going to the Polk County website and downloading this checklist and drawing up some maps, showing them what I wanted to do. And I went to the board meeting for that township and I sat there and I was the first one up. They stood up and said, Hey, I'm, I'm Neil Hogger. And I've, I've got this 30 right here. And I handed them, I had everybody had a map and I handed it out to everybody. And I, they said, what would you like to do? And I said, I like to split this in half. And they said, so, okay, so what, what do you plan on doing with it? And I said, well, on that half, which has no buildings, that's going to be a camper or something. And they said, are you putting a driveway in? And I said, well, if I'm required to, I would. And they said, yeah, you probably would. Ha- we would ask you to do that. I said, okay, if I split it that way, I will. And the other half, I'm just leaving this mobile home on it. And I'm actually talking about it on my vlog. I'm going to show the process, but in long and short of it, it is I decided not to split it, but I got the okay from them really easy. As long as I wasn't going to like, they didn't want a bunch of subdivision with trailer, mobile trailers and everything, but a 20 acre, they were fine with that actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But so, you know, the larger the parcel, probably the less hassle you will have in terms of getting any kind of zoning change or approval or whatever. Um, that's what you want to do. Um, on that particular property that I had, it actually was in five different parcels we sold that off at. Okay. And, so you uh, took the 160 divided by five? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. And they're different. You know, one's a 60, one's a 40, one's a 33, one's a 22, and the other's a five. Okay. So um, just kind of dependent, a little dependent upon the terrain and the features of the land and stuff like that. I would say uh, to your listeners that uh, access is... You know, if you're going to be doing this, access is a big issue, right? Blacktop roads are a big issue as well. But I'd say access is the biggest deal. If you if you can find a piece of property that has two roads on two sides, it makes it so much easier if you know, split it into smaller pieces, right? Uh, that type of thing. So um, the power is a big deal. You got power, you, you've got... You, I, there's a lot of pieces here in the more remote areas of central Wisconsin that don't have power, believe it or not. Uh, and, you know, there, there's some real limitations about what you can get for that piece of property versus somebody that's down the road here a mile that has the power to it. What about internet? That's going to be a real big issue. I hear it, I hear it more and more and more. You know, they, they ask just about every buyer nowadays asks, well, what kind of... What kind of internet right. connections can we get here or expect here as a cyber optics, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, as people start working uh, away from home, away from their place of work, uh, working at home, kids doing their homework at home, it's, it's become a much bigger issue than it was even two, three years ago. How do you typically determine all these amenities that might be there? How do you know? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy. Well, easy um you know just the road is easy if there's power there it's pretty easy to find out telephone uh ask if you ask around a little bit you can go uh, some of the utilities can point you in the right direction about if there's you know if there's you can call a utility and say do you service that road and you know they can tell you yes or no or who might uh there's not forget what the website is tell you if there's a uh, fiber optics and things like that, and uh, yeah. Um, so that would be the other thing. And I, 
websites uh, can help you in some of the different areas as far as what, what things are assessed for and taxes and, and parcel numbers. And, and usually there's an overlay map on um, flooding, flood, you know, floodplain and wetlands and all that good stuff, um, school districts, et cetera. Um, school districts aren't quite as big a deal as they used to be because with the uh, open enrollment now, there's, you can go to various school districts regardless of where you live. Right. Um, but, you know, it's still nice to be in a school district that's well regarded. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, so uh, access, power, internet. I know that a lot of one good thing that came from out of the Obama era, there were some grants that a lot of these rural areas got those amenities brought in. And I know they brought it down my road. And a lot of times you could just drive down the road and you'll see these little yellow post basically that say five buried fiber optic cable and you'd be surprised at the rural areas that have it i mean roads that you weren't you wouldn't even think have it right one thing we haven't really touched on is is the actual deer hunting itself so you know all properties are just a little bit different all you know all townships are a little bit different as well in the in the quality of the hunting and things like that um, you know, if you're really looking for a, a great hunting piece, you might ask a little around about how many people are, you know, depending upon what you want in hunting again. If you want, if, if you want traditional hunting, you're, you're probably your main focus is, uh, is there a good deer population here, right? Uh, if you're looking for, uh, maybe more mature bucks, you might ask around how many people are actively involved in QDM, things like that. And you can, uh, you know, the other thing is, obviously, if you have a significant amount of wetland on the property, it may not draw as much interest or much as much value as a higher piece of ground would. Um, river bottoms, uh, while they're very good deer hunting, there's a lot of hunters today that don't really want to be trying to cross sloughs at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, on the opening day of deer season. So a lot of those things kind of factor into um, into what property you want to buy and, and how much are you willing to tolerate as far as if it's really wet versus not, things like that. Tree, trees, size of tree, maturity of them, what kind of trees are on it also impacts value of the property. Um, the managed forest program, uh, I think, is a, it's been a real boon to landowners because it reduces your taxes, but it also requires you to do some, some timber cuts and things like that, which ultimately help the the wildlife some people don't like to see those trees cut you know so they have to kind of factor that in a little bit too as to whether it's an mfl or not when it comes to deer hunting and the wetland and the, the mfl plan in my experience it a lot of that depends on how it's marketed because i would argue that if you get with a good land specialist that knows the benefit of that and you market a property after you own it by getting good photos and showing the quality of the deer there. And then QDMA neighborhood, you know, well-managed neighborhood. You always hear that, hey, you know, when you get something really cheap in a really great neighborhood, you know, let me know. And, and then when you divide these up into smaller parcels, it's a f- more affordable. I think it's all about just marketing it to the right guy and knowing who your end buyer will be and who you're targeting. And then again, that comes back to the sales training that I've always had is, you know, know your buyer and target to that buyer. And you're not trying to be everything to everybody. You're not, this isn't suburbia. This is recreational hunting land. 
And that's who my target audience is. So I might look for those quote unquote marginal properties that other people would pass by and think, no, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. And then you can buy it at that good price, subdivide it, make it affordable. And then all those negative aspects that kept that cost down is actually your best asset when you sell it. And I want to say price it up, but you're pricing at market, good market rates and you're marketing it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know that you mentioned the MFL part. There's a lot of buyers out there that aren't uh, real familiar with it. They, they aren't, um, you know, they don't run into it every day. And you know, a lot of, a lot of the buyers that I work with here are first time buyers. And so the MFL, uh, depending upon who they've talked to, could be, could be like, Oh no, I don't want an MFL. I, I've talked to a lot of buyers out of that attitude after I explain to them, and I'm sure you have too, uh, hey, there's some really some great benefits to this. I, I, I've never owned a piece of hunting ground that I haven't put in MFL clothes, you know. And I, I, I don't see the wisdom of, of some people thinking that, well, it's a government program. It must not be good. This is one of the ones that's really good, in my opinion, because you get to keep the, the uh, revenue from the timber cuts, uh, you're improving the you're improving your land in terms of holding deer on it and the nutrition for the deer, right? Um, and the taxes are two thirds less than what they would normally be. I, I don't see what the the downside of that whole thing. Yeah. Is, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have this preconceived idea that the DNR keeps the money when the timber's cut, and it just these horror stories. And I just say, I say, let me sit you down and explain this thing to you, and after you do it. It only takes you five minutes and they're like, oh, well, I didn't know all that. Right. Well, there you go. So I would um, say I'm probably on, goes. I'm on the side of the fence where I don't necessarily like the intrusion, but only because the one time that I looked into it and I got a, uh, and the guy didn't know what I did for a living and, and he didn't know I knew anything about it. By the time he was going to get done cutting it, it was going to be a clear cut. They were going to do this shelter wood cut. And there was going to be 12 standing trees for every acre roughly. And it was going to be great regeneration. And he told me that he was really selling me hard of how great this habitat was going to be for animals. And I said, yeah, it's going to be a jungle, no doubt, but nobody's going to want to buy it when it's done because it's going to take 40 years to grow back. And, you know, so I, so while I'm on one level, I would say, yes, and maybe this is a podcast where we mean you need to point counterpoint this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to keep it for a long time, I would say put it in there. If you think you want to turn it over in the next five years, maybe 10, I probably would not um, do it. Or if you did do it, just let them know that maybe you just want a timber stand improvement or maybe just a select tree harvest. Just know what the what the look of it is going to be. And what I've told people is um, ask him what this – you know, based on what you're telling me and what I'm telling you, I want show me another property that you've written a plan on. Let me, can I go look at it and see if, yeah, that's, I would mind mine looking like this or no, I do not want my land looking like this. And then you'll know because Mm -hmm. there's different cuts, there's different styles and a lot of people don't know the difference. So. Right. And it, and it, it kind of depends on what the force is like, what, what you're looking at. I mean, uh, some people don't realize that, for example, Popple or Aspen, as it's named, uh, needs to be clear cut in order for yeah. it to regenerate. If you don't clear cut it and you leave a bunch of shade in there, you aren't going to have Aspen coming up. You right. just have a, pretty much grass. 
you know, and maybe some hardwoods eventually will make their way through, or if it's a pine area, some small pine will start coming up. But that aspen is really, prefer, you know, it's, it's a great deer and, and uh, grouse feed and stuff like that. So some some areas you really need to clear cut, and other areas when you get into the um, the maple and the oak and stuff like that, that's where you can really start um, being selective about what, what you're going to be taking out of there. And if you let a logger do your management plan for you, I would say you're making a huge mistake. I would hire a professional um, you know, person in that industry to help you determine what trees you want to have taken out. The loggers, you know, they, they want to make money. So they'll, they'll, they'll take all the very best they can out of a cut and leave the rest. You, you, you really should have a private professional, uh, forester come in there and help determine what trees are the best ones to take out. Right. And it might be based on, uh, based on the crown cover above. Might be based on there's a you know just an older tree or a smaller tree that's always going to be shaded out, so you might as well take that one out of there. You know they they make that decision, and then they then they hold the the uh, the logging company take out the ones that they've marked. So uh, I, to your point, uh, you you can you can be pretty specific about how these plans are written up, and if, if it meets that goal for you, I think you're going to save a lot of money doing it that way. Yeah. Well, Brian, we are at an hour and 11 minutes. This is the, this, oh my gosh. I know it flies and this is the longest one I ever had. So by now I got one listener hanging on and they're waiting for us to wrap it up, but <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you coming on here. You know what I think we need to do? We need to have you come back and, um, well, we're going to have to do a, a whole conversation just about MFL. Cause I think that's a cool topic yeah. that people yeah. are going to want to hear about, but I really like the story. I love the history of people that have uh, owned land for a long time. And honestly, it's kind of a series I want to do a long, you know, a number of talks about guys like you that have these legacy family, legacy plan, uh, ownership of properties. It's pretty cool. So I want to thank you for coming on. Um, it's been a great talk and I know I'm going to see you in a couple days at our national meeting. So I appreciate that you gave me the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invite and, and uh, congrats on your uh, great podcast. All right, buddy. Thank you. Well, that was a good call. And uh, sorry about that. We got a little long, but man, he started taking off on some topics there. And I thought, I'm just going to let him run with that. The MFL program is a, uh, a whole nother uh, discussion that I'm probably going to have to have Brian come back and uh, we'll dive into that because I know that a lot of questions come up that surround the MFL program and I think it'd be very valuable to the listeners. So, uh, Brian uh, Roy, she's a great American landman. And hey, if you'd like to be an American landman and you're looking to buy, manage, and sell American land, I'd like to be your guy in the land business. Give me a call. Um, the The inventory is low right now, but I think in the next six months, things are going to really start opening up. So, start saving your nickels and then give me a call. And if you're selling something, you want to capture the wave, um, I think, um, I don't know how much longer the price is going to be where they're at. So now is the time. Um, give me a call and I'll help you. If you're anywhere in the United States, I'll get you the right guy. Hey, folks, we're going to wrap it up. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm Neil Hogger and I'm a land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate. And you've been listening to the American Landman Podcast.